One of the truisms of the study of poetry in the ancient world is that ancient poets were men and that women didn't write poetry and basically the woman as writer has become a phenomenon in culture only in the, in the modern period, in the progressive period. This of course is untrue. As a truism goes, uh, usually there are major exceptions to it. Uh, we've talked about some of the great uh, female poets of the ancient world, Sappho, Eudocia, Erina, Proba, and I want to add one to the list today who's not quite as ancient as uh, Sappho or Erina, uh, but who, who still, I think, firmly fits into the poetry that we don't often read anymore because it's so old. But this is a writer who kind of left her mark on the modern world in a big way. I'm talking about St. Cassia or Cassiani, the hymnographer. Cassia lived in the ninth century in Constantinople, and she's most remembered for a story about her life and one hymn that she wrote. In fact, she wrote dozens and dozens, if not hundreds of hymns, and we have many of her hymns scattered throughout the liturgies of the Eastern Orthodox Church. The most famous hymn is sung on the evening of Holy Tuesday during Holy Week, and it's the hymn of the woman who anoints Jesus's feet with oil. I'm not going to read and talk about that hymn. There, Lots of scholarship has been done on it. Maybe we can do a podcast in the future on it. I want to talk about her other major work. Now, like I mentioned, many of her hymns are scattered throughout the church year, and uh, one would have to pick through the hymn books of the Eastern Church to even identify all of them. And we have we have a problem uh, with Cassia's hymns, as we do with, with writers like uh, Ambrose and Ephraim, where probably more than one person wrote hymns and signed them Cassia the hymnographer. And so we have to sometimes have that argument about figuring out, okay, what, which are authentic, which aren't. Ambrose, for instance, in the fourth century, we have between four and eight hymns that we're pretty sure he wrote, and then dozens more hymns that we're not sure if he wrote, but people kind of wrote his name on them uh, when they published them. So Cassia is, is a fantastic person to study because her life is so colorful. I mentioned she's known for the hymn on Holy Tuesday primarily, but she's also known for a story about her life. And of course, we love to get into the love lives of our poets. Some might say we're too obsessed with the love lives of, of the poets that we are interested in. But the story of Cassia's love life is fun primarily because of what didn't happen. So... The story goes, and of course, how exactly true this is, you know, we'd need to look at the, uh, the old Byzantine chronicles and um, compare the versions of the story. The typical version of the story goes like this. It's the early 800s. Cassia was probably born in the, sometime in the first decade of the 800s. By the time she's of age, it's also time for the young emperor Theophilus to choose a wife. And as these stories often go, there is some sort of um, a pageant or show of all the aristocratic young ladies who are eligible to be married. And Theophilus, as befits his royal uh, privilege, gets to choose, you know, among, you know, the beauties of the land. It's sort of like uh, Miss America pageant where at the end, it, maybe it's a combination between Miss America and The Bachelor. I don't know. Um, of course, you know, we could point out problems with this approach to uh, courtship, but 
so the story goes. Cassia is very beautiful. She's part of this bride show or competition for the young Theophilus. And the 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 juicy part of the story is uh, Theophilus is walking down the line of all these, you know, beautiful maidens. And he he's, you know, interacting with them, asking them questions. Well, he gets to Cassia and he decides to tease her or perhaps even mock her and see how she responds. And so, as the legend goes, he says to her, perhaps bluntly, through woman came that which is evil in the world. Referring, of course, to Eve eating of the forbidden fruit in Genesis. Cassia is said to have retorted back, and through woman came that which is greatest in the world. Referring, of course, to Mary giving birth to Christ. I think perhaps if we were Theophilus, we would have been impressed at the wit and uh, boldness of this joke and the quickness of the retort. And we perhaps would have chosen Cassia and, you know, that would have been that. Theophilus, of course, apparently was not as impressed as we perhaps would have been and and was taken aback and offended by this. And he ended up choosing not Cassia, but the woman who would go on to be his wife. I think her name was Theodora. So what does Cassia do instead of becoming empress of all of the Byzantine Empire? Well, Cassia, and this isn't just part of the legend, This we know that this certainly happened, she went and joined a monastery. Now, some version of the story have, you know, she was deeply in love with Theophilus and thought he would be impressed with her wit and was crushed by the fact that he did not appreciate her wit. It's, it's unclear whether that is, in fact, the truth. What we know is she went and joined a monastery and distinguished herself uh, and became an abbess of a monastery in Constantinople. And as an abbess, she basically started a career as a hymnographer and as a poet. And so her hymns, as we mentioned before, become part of the liturgy, very important, the hymn of the woman who anoints Jesus' feet is seen as sort of a musical high point, not just in Holy Week, but in the church year. It's sort of both, you know, it's a privilege to have your, you know, anything you write become part of a permanent liturgy uh, in any fashion, but her hymn is seen as sort of one of the most beautiful, the most complex, apparently, chanters uh, practice to be able to perform her hymn, I won't sing it for you here, I am not a trained chanter, but you can go look up the hymn of Cassiani. Apparently, it's a, it's a pride and joy of experienced Byzantine chanters to be able to put their own spin, their own improvisation on the hymn of Cassiani. What I want to look at is, in fact, the poems that she wrote that are pretty related in spirit to this famous exchange that she had with Theophilus. Through woman came that which is evil in the world. Ah, but through woman also came what is best in the world. She, she, was, she was a poet not just of, of beautiful liturgical hymnography, but she was a poet of quick pith and wit. And we have hundreds, uh, over 700 in fact, short epigrams or gnomic verses by Cassiani. These are basically a line between one and three lines uh, of poetry. Some of them are iambic. Some of them are in, in a strange meter. I'm going to read you one that in the Greek is mostly a series of spondies with some trochees and dactyls. But they're, they're basically uh, turns of phrase that are basically giving kind of her, her take on the world. I might say hot take on the world, uh, but in fact, 
Uh, these aren't hot takes. These are very, very carefully crafted verses. Uh, I want to read a couple to you just so, so we can get a feel for the kind of thing that was prized in Byzantine writing, that was prized by both her fellow nuns and by those who read her, that aren't explicitly even religious, but are poems that kind of, I don't know, identify a particular perspective toward not just social niceties, but an approach to ethics even. She has a series of epigrams uh, that start with the word kreson uh, in Greek, which means better or greater than. So one of the first kreson epigrams is better to be alone than viceful with comrades. Just one line, 12 syllables. I've translated it in mostly uh, dactyls with some trochees uh, to give a sense for the rhythm, though there are more spondies uh, in her Greek original. Better to be alone than viceful with comrades. Very straightforward. She has a few of these that basically contrast this. Better to be in a state that is usually seen as relatively undesirable than to be in a desirable state but be viceful or to be evil. In the Greek, uh, she keeps using this word kakes, viceful, evil, bad. Better to be alone than viceful with comrades. Better to be diseased than viceful and healthy. Better to be enfeebled than evil and fit. I like that last one. Better to be enfeebled than evil and fit. Here's one that's three lines. And actually, I think we see it's one of her epigrams that is in at least the manuscript of epigrams that we have. It's a little later in the epigram epigram sequence. And so we, I get the feeling that perhaps, you know, she had started with these short epigrams and then realized, you know, I can amplify my points, not just better A than B, but, but maybe uh, kind of wax eloquent about it. So she says, better to keep silence than speak the offensive. Such silence is harmful never, never reproached, never regretted, never accused nor forsworn. Better to keep silence than speak the offensive. Such silence is harmful never, never reproached, never regretted, never accused, nor forsworn. So this is four lines of 12 syllables each. Uh, as you can tell, I, I translated them with a sort of dactyl and trochee rhythm. She could have just stopped at better to keep silence than speak the offensive. That word offensive there isn't just like socially offensive. It would be to, to speak about things that are kind of inherently improper. She could have stopped there, but she goes, she goes on to basically, basically drive home this point. Such silence is never harmful, never reproach, never regret. It's, it's this doubling down on to be silent instead of to give offense is always a good idea. It's never a bad idea. And I, the, the relationship with Proverbs in all of these poems, but especially with this one, I think is important, right? Even a fool, the writer of Proverbs says, when he keeps his mouth shut, is supposed to be wise. It's interesting because Cassiani actually has another famous just one line epigram that says, I hate the one who keeps silence when it is time to speak. There's perhaps a paradox here. Okay, well, what is it, Cassie, Cassia? Is it that we're to keep silent always or that we're to speak? What is it? And I think the key is she's saying, if you have a choice to offend, to belittle or to tear down or to be silent, that kind of silence, that choosing silence over giving offense is always preferable. But in this other epigram, perhaps written you know, at a different time, different place in her life, she says, I hate 
the one who keeps silence when it is time to speak. This isn't keeping silence or giving offense as the two options. The two options are it's time to speak. If you keep silence, that's that's cowardice. So I think that one of the fun things about these short little poems by Cassia are she's trying out not just fun ways to say ethical maxims, but also through through the course of her epigrams, kind of giving nuance to particular practices. She's not saying just always be quiet. She's giving particular context for the use of silence, giving context for the use of even, even things that we might see as unfortunate, like sickness. Look, if you're sick but are acting virtuously, that's better than being in good health and acting evilly. Are you enfeebled and are jealous of you know the fit man? It is better to be enfeebled than evil and fit. Um, of course, there's, there's a very deeply Christian, and even I think going all the way back to Proverbs, we might call Solomonic, a principle here, that those things that are ostensibly bad in this life, those things that we don't have control over, misfortune, misfortune isn't as bad as chosen evil. And perhaps we could even point all the way back to uh, mm -hmm. someone like Epictetus, the Stoic Greek, who said that we have control over very little. What we have control over is our own actions. If you choose evil, Cassia is saying, and Epictetus would have said, that is the greatest misfortune. You get sick, you don't have as much money as you hope or maybe even you need to stay virtuous and be relatively poor is always better than to be evil. And I think, it, I think it's something that the Byzantines and sort of the Greek virtue ethics tradition might be very helpful for. Uh, we, we often, I think, even in poetry, lament misfortune that we don't have control over, but don't seek to control our ethical actions to shape our ethical lives in ways that we do. Of course, this goes back to Boethius. Boethius in the sixth century is sitting there in prison bemoaning his state. You know, he's, he's a political prisoner, basically, and he's awaiting execution, uh, arguably through no fault of his own. And Lady Philosophy comes and says, why are you mourning something you have no control over? You have control over your, your choices. You have control over your reason. Your reason can control your emotion, and you can seek God regardless of where you are. Now, someone might come along to, to you know, the Boethius, Boethian and Cassianic poets of the world and say, well, that's all well and good to say when you yourself are feeling okay. Uh, try being miserable and keeping to virtue as opposed to being evil and fit. You know, maybe evil and fit we'd prefer. Cassia says with her wit, no. No, in fact, that's not true. I want to now look at a poem that we see her apply, uh, you know, applying the same principle, but, but kind of having fun with language and focusing on something uh, that maybe we don't always focus on, uh, even in our ethics. She says, better you sluggard to not be begotten than being begotten in sloth not get up and walk. Better you sluggard to not be begotten than being begotten in sloth not get up and walk. Now, I've emphasized the aw sound there. It's because there's this wonderful wordplay in the Greek in that second line where there's a repeating, 
there's a repeating vowel sound. It's the A sound, the eta uh, in Greek. It, there's, there's a repeating te, me, gay, tau, eta, mu, eta, gamma, eta are repeated. She's playing with sounds. And what she's playing with sounds in is a poem where she's basically uh, chiding the sluggish one, the one who just wants to lay in bed all day. And she says, look, if you're not going to move, it's better to have not been born. If you were born, get up, live, act. It's better to not be begotten. It's interesting. She, she uses the word, um, the word is uh, geneta. Uh, generate. It's better to have never been generated, never to have been begotten, than to basically act like an inanimate object. Uh, and she she's playing with and and I and I like this uh, this te me gay. It it almost it almost seems like a sort of like repeated pleading even in the uh, even in the repeated sounds like get up and walk. Um, in my translation, I, I use the the aw sound of walk begotten in sloth not get up and walk it's not it's not quite what cassiani's doing uh, and it's the challenge of every translator to try and show the genius there uh, and of course to to not ever quite succeed uh, dorothy sayers says the best a translator can do is basically put up a giant signpost that says there is beauty in the original read it so if, if you're feeling brave uh, you could check out the epigrams of cassiani and puzzle through if you know how to pronounce Greek or learn how, just the sound of them, they're, they're so short, the sound of them and the repeated vowel sounds are wonderful. And I think this comes to my main point of reading them. These are not major poems, even of Cassiani's body of work. Her, her, her hymns are longer and more complex. But I think one of the things that I'm often reminded of as a poet is that the practice of crafting a line or a stanza and of pouring all the energy one can into getting the syllables in the right patterns and the sounds, you know, harmony and rhythm with one another is good work. And it's not being a sluggard poetically. And Cassiani, I think, is showing us that she is being quite industrious as she chastises the sluggard. And I like it because Cassiani, I think we, we sometimes we sometimes associate ancient writers with being more decorous, more polite, more stately. Cassiani is speaking her mind. She's telling us, you know, who she's mad at, right? I hate the one who keeps silence when it's time to speak. That word there is miso. That's I hate. It's not... I, I dislike or I would like to reasonably convince this person to act otherwise. It's I hate. She, she, doesn't, she doesn't mind being blunt, but even in her bluntness, she is highly crafted and um, has well-formed retorts at the ready, if our legend of her retort to the emperor is any indication. If you want to know more, uh, you can uh, read more about Cassiani online. She's a very interesting person. There, there's a whole part of her story that we haven't got to, we don't have time for, about how she was involved in the iconoclastic controversy and may have even been uh, physically whipped by iconoclasts and possibly exiled as well. Uh, there's evidence that she ended up in Italy for a time. So Cassiani just has a, a fantastic story. Uh, it would make a good uh, make a good miniseries. I've heard that she actually shows up 
in the TV show Vikings. I haven't watched it. I don't know if it's a good show or even a or even a you know edifying show. But apparently, she as a historical figure makes an appearance in that TV show. Um, so I, I'd like to do more investigation of her works in the future. But this has been a little introduction to some of these wonderful little epigrams uh, that remind us, hopefully in the end, to choose virtue, to act. Act rightly for the situations we're in, even when it's hard. We don't usually like preachy poetry in our day and age, or maybe we like it to preach about the things we think should be preached about. Cassiani doesn't care what we want to be preached about. She's going to tell us her mind. And her mind thus echoes down the ages in these well-crafted little lines. Thank you. This has been the Poetry Corner Podcast. I'm Dr. Timothy Bartell.